What's your name? King Lou. They call me Cookie. My mother died when I was born, and then my father died. I never stopped moving. It's the getting started that's the puzzle. No way for a poor man to start. You have a cow. First cow in the territory. Same place for cows. Well, it's no place for a white man either. I sense opportunity here. So we're talking today about one of the most unique, talented voices in indie cinema, at least if you ask the critics and not her audience, Kelly Reichert. We'll start by going back to where it all began with Rivers of Grass. And then we're going to track the progression of her career, more or less, with some of our highlights or favorites before we get to her latest first cow. Duncan, you excited? Yay! <laughs> All right, let's do it. And we're back with Duncan from San Francisco. Duncan, any updates on life? How are you doing? <laughs> Ryan? I figure if we talk on this podcast enough, it'll be free therapy from uh, all the listeners were leaving comments. Um, right now, nothing to report ever. Um, the films, all I've been doing, you know, watching movies, a little bit of babysitting. The films I watched this week were A, A Cry for Help, and then B, Tears of Joy. That's my little teaser. We'll get to that at the end of the podcast. So please stick along. How about you? Oh, not too much. I just got done stuffing my face full of pasta. And uh, now I'm looking at a big storm clouds rolling in over here in Albuquerque because we're not just a desert. We have rain too. And we are currently getting a respite from that hot New Mexican sun. Yeah, we don't want to pigeonhole New Mexico. We are dynamic. What about the dynamic styles of Kelly Riker? When did you first hear about this fine cinema maker, Ragai? I believe the first movie of hers I saw was Wendy and Lucy, and I stumbled upon it purely by accident. I like <laughs> Michelle Williams. I'm a big fan. I saw it was a Michelle Williams movie. I metacritic it to see if it was high enough score that I'd be interested in it. Just Ooh. going in cold. So elitist, Raga. I know, I know. Full, full confession here. Uh, Notes to our future therapist who's going to give us free sessions on here. I, you know, I, I just, I look at movies Metacritic before I watch them. If it's a cold, like turkey, that's just, that's my first confession. Confessions from Rye Guy. <laughs> Out of the confessional booth. Uh, my confessions. Yeah, I think <laughs> Kelly first popped on my radar probably around the wendy and lucy era seeing michelle williams little pup uh probably at an indie theater somewhere near me but i've haven't jumped into the deep end with kelly until the last week or two but don't worry i've done my homework i've seen about five of her films now nobody likes a bandwagon fan you know what when the bandwagon is rolling that slow it's easy to hop on <laughs> Like Oregon Trail. What do you say your signature styles are for our, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Kelly? I would say that she really enjoys Oregon and the Northwest, even though she's from Florida. And what blew she my is, mind, she doesn't live in the Northwest. She lives in New York City. But I think yeah. six out of her seven films take place there or so. How do you feel about that, Duncan? Do you feel like she's a traitor to the city you love? No. 
I think there's a lot of New York cinema, probably a pretty crowded, crowded space there. But yeah, if, if you love it, go out there and see it. She gets to see it with fresh eyes every two or three years when she makes a film. Yeah, so yeah. she loves Oregon. Let's see. She also enjoys films about people who don't have a safety net. Stakes are high and the thread is thin that holds them above them and their doom. And that's <laughs> something that is pretty prevalent. Pretty much all of her characters are not not in a good place, nor are they headed towards a better place. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Always a quick slice of life. If you're looking for a happy ending, you won't find that. If you're looking for a sad ending, you won't find that either. These Most of her films really don't have much of an ending. Yeah, and she's super patient. We're taking our time. We're watching the coffee be made. We're clipping the hedges. We're enjoying the songbirds outside the window. First uh, cow it, does have a three minutes scene of sweeping and chopping wood. Her films are certainly interesting and engaging. Would you believe that entertaining is the right word there, Rye Guy? Oh, I think they're entertaining, but okay. it's an acquired entertainment. <laughs> yeah. You can't just throw someone in the Kelly Riker deep end uh, if they're not used to maybe that kind of scene or have been exposed to that kind of cinema before. Yeah. Slow cinema, as critic A.O. Scott calls it, neo-neorealism. He just made that up. He doesn't mean anything. So is it about time we go back to the beginning? Let these people know where it all began? Down to the river. Lee and I had crossed that straight line that Dad called the law. What's she doing with this guy? Murder was thicker than marriage, and Lee and I were now bound by the life we took. We should just get out of here. Hit the road, maybe go up north somewhere. I could feel the butterflies in my stomach as I tumbled deeper into a life of crime. So we're starting with River of Grass, 1994, where it all began for Reichert. It is about a dissatisfied housewife. She's making decisions. Most of them are pretty dispiriting. She goes to a bar. She has a few drinks. Actions are had. Consequences come swiftly. Next thing you know, she and this man she's met at the bar are on the run together, thinking they've committed a murder. So Kelly gets along real well with the critics. They're friends. She is not <laughs> friends with her audience. The audience uh, ratings, if you check them online on the website of your choice, typically there's quite a disparity between them and the critics' reviews. Am I right, Duncan? You are absolutely right. I mean, she's always at the festival. She's always on top 10 of the years, sometimes even the decade. Uh, but I don't think the fan base has ever popped above 70%, usually hovering around mid-50s. Are we better than the people? Are we men of the people? We go back and forth. Something tells me she doesn't care. <laughs> She's got a career. She's making what yeah. she wants to make. She's got her little art house fanboys. Yeah, we are amongst her stable. <laughs> so Kelly was born and raised in Miami. Uh, her parents were in law enforcement. So if you see this movie, you're going to see a lot of parallels between the father of Cozy is in law enforcement Obviously, she's very well attuned and familiar with the geography and the culture and just the streets of southern Florida or near the Everglades. She had a really interesting comment when asked about this movie, that this movie is a road movie without the road, a love story without love, and a crime story without the crime, which I think is pretty spot on. 
because everything you think it's going to do, it doesn't do. She's her own best critic. <laughs> this one, I definitely had a strong reaction to, uh, but it wasn't a positive one. I hate coming out swinging the first film we review like this, but I love the other stuff. So I'll, I'll take you, a back. You pretend you're a lover, but you're not. When Wendy and Lucy brought me to tears, we'll get to that one. But now let's let's get back to the river. Ryan, what did you love about this one? What did we see differently? Love is strong. I didn't love it. I just wasn't a hater this time, which is nice because normally I'm the one that you're yelling at for being mean to the movies and to the filmmakers and to their art and their hopes and their dreams. But I think that I was able to just kind of let the movie be what it wanted to be. I had no expectations. I think that there were definitely silly bits or at least hard to stomach. You brought up the moment where Lee, who's the man that she met at the bar, is trying to hold up a store. And when he goes in, someone holds up the store right as he's about to pull the gun. And moments like that are just kind of, they, they could come across as contrived, maybe a little unrealistic, although I've never been to Miami. Maybe people are robbing stores, right? One after the other. Get in line to rob the store. And then the store clerk attacks Lee, who didn't even go through a robbery. I know. I thought that was so weird. It was super bad at him. Basically, it just kind of felt like a deflating balloon. It was a subversion of the genre. When you think on the run movies, you can think Bonnie and Clyde, Thelma and Louise. These things just didn't happen. Uh, They wanted meaning for their lives. They think they have found it. And so then they live according to consequences that they believe are they're on the run from. And then they come to find out there are no consequences. So I thought that was a nice subversion of the genre. Almost when you're discontent or not feeling satisfied with life, you can sometimes create your own troubles or you basically just inflate something's importance or the seriousness of it in your head and then you come to find out that it was all just you all along so i thought that was pretty interesting but i will agree it was a bit slow and it was a bit boring at moments sorry kelly (laughs) when kelly listens to this she's gonna be so mad (laughs) sorry kelly duncan larry fezenden is florida jack nicholson am i right okay he does have the shining era hairdo for sure. And what shocked me, Larry has more acting credits than Jack Nicholson. I think he was a pretty fresh comer at this point, but yeah, he's deep indie scene. We, we haven't gone that deep yet, but yeah, he's been working for a few decades now. Yeah. I don't know if it was, I think it was the smile and the hair. Yeah. I was just getting, I was just getting the shining in Florida a lot. That's I was getting funny. a lot of shining in Florida. <laughs> They did go mad in that hotel for a little bit. I noticed. You think I didn't notice? He started pointing that gun at his friend. I'm like, here we go. It's going to get weird. I mean, as we brought up, the suspension of disbelief was not working for me here. Just too many convenient plot twists string this along. You know, throughout the film, characters are constantly talking, telling jokes. No one's, and no one is interested. Like, It feels like the characters are barely interested in each other. So yeah, they don't quite have the charm, charisma, points of view, interesting takes on life to help me go along with them. So for for me, it was just rough. But I think one thing that she does do really well 
is painting character through behavior. And we like, we see Lee drawing on his shoes out of boredom, which definitely feels like a high school kid thing, even though he's in his late twenties, steals an entire load of laundry just so he can get one shirt, playing with a gun, trying to be a tough guy. What do you think? But cozy putting Coke in a baby bottle, keeping three kids in a crib while she dances in the yard. Right. <laughs> That's what I thought of when you told me you thought it was boring. I just imagine that scene where Cozy's got her arms out, spinning around, staring at this guy, and her dad just goes, What's wrong with you? <laughs> I was like, Yeah, Duncan is Duncan is Cozy's dad at that moment. <laughs> Ryan, have you seen the film Gummo? No. Okay. But I see it's in your for fans of. Yeah. So Gummo, one of I think Har- Harmony Corinne's directorial debut after writing Kids which is just white poverty porn set out in Ohio. I can't tell what is Harmony's true personality, if he's a free spirit or just trying to be an edgy provocateur. But there is some art in Gummo, even though it definitely verges on exploitation at times. But I think Kelly did love these characters since they were close to her heart. But to me, I just didn't see the any beauty in it. Yeah, that's fair. It's I don't think she's necessarily trying to show beauty I think she maybe is just trying to show what is and how people have to exist within what is. And I would say that, yeah, she probably has a pretty harsh is strong, but she has a a maybe cynical uh, or at least questions her upbringing or where she's from and maybe the culture and what the influences that are in their people's lives Um, or at least shows how it's easy to check out until, and then you go on the lamb. Yeah, the characters certainly aren't aspirational, but I don't feel she's looking down on them. Not aspirational. They they left the county, Duncan. You saying they got they, big dreams? They crossed county lines. I don't know. That doesn't happen that much. They brought it up a lot. Okay. Yeah. They're yeah. I mean, there's there's no tragic home life for either of them. They just they don't have much to look forward to. So they yeah, create their own situation as an excuse to get out. But I think the films that influence this are much stronger choices if you're looking for something in this. I mean, for me, the biggest, clearest influence, and I think Kelly mentioned it in one interview, is Terrence Malick's Badlands. You have this sort of young, naive female character with sort of a stream of conscious voiceover throughout the entire film, meets the bad boy, they go on the run. Uh, Also, Breathless, a woman takes on the criminal, and there was much more like an experimental style uh, through Rivers of Grass. And also, yeah, I mentioned Gummo. Very, very loose association there. Gummo was a very tough watch. All right. I thought that this movie reminded me less of Badlands. It's been a while since I've seen that one, but I just started thinking about on the run film. So the most recent is Queen and Slim. That's a really interesting movie. I didn't love everything about it, but I thought creatively it was more original and it took more risks than this movie. Then you've got Thelma and Louise, Bonnie and Clyde, anything where... Two people are together, thrust together by life circumstances and events that are outside of their control. And then they're just, you know, driving away from life because they don't deserve love. (laughs) Make a run for it. Yeah, running away from your problems. Sometimes you just end up running into new ones. I enjoy going to director's first films because to see where she came from and where she has ended up, I think that's tremendous. I think it helps you understand where a filmmaker has been and where they're going when you kind of see the full arc. So I was excited to watch this 
uh, just because I'd never seen it. And for that reason, if nothing else, this is for the Reichart completists out there. View the proud, the Reichharts, <laughs> the I heart Reichart. <laughs> Uh, so next we have Old Joy made in 2006. It's exclusively on the Criterion channel as of now. Two male friends out in the woods and we're two male friends who don't have Criterion channel. So we're moving on to Wendy and Lucy. I can't get a job without an address anyway. <laughs> or a phone. You can't get an address without an address. You can't get a job without a job. It's all fixed. That's why I'm going to Alaska. Here they need people. I hear it's real pretty up there. Yeah. In Wendy and Lucy, we see our first appearance of Michelle Williams, co-collaborator with Kelly on many occasions from here on out. It's during the summer. Wendy is played by Michelle Williams, and then Lucy, her dog, is Lucy the dog. And they are driving up to old Ketchikan, Alaska, Alaska, near and dear to my heart, and she's going to be fishing, but she's scraping by with the few 20s that are still wrinkled in her coat pocket that she's counting out every night, and she stops in a small town in Oregon. And this is one of the first films based off John Raymond's writing, a short story called Train Choir, and John Raymond will be a co-writer with Kelly almost from here on out. As Kelly said, a lot of her characters do not have a safety net. And I think that's Kelly's greatest skill as a director. She can humanize, unfortunately, be categorized as politics. I mean, her, her films are political without having an agenda or being propaganda. She just humanizes a story. It doesn't matter which side you're on. Just the goal is to feel certainly rise above pitying the poor or looking down upon them, wanting to criminalize it. And hopefully, certainly for me, this certainly tugged on my heartstrings. I was crying a few times. So yeah, this this is my favorite Reichardt film. Do you want me to cry now or do you want to <laughs> take it away? You're not already crying? <laughs> no, this this had a few ooh, sharp right there. I feel like I'm obligated to say, the dog does not die. You are safe to watch this film. It is one of the few cinema dogs that lives. And <laughs> if you've seen any amount of film with dogs in it, that's pretty much the first thing you expect to go. I believe Chekhov had his theory on if you show a gun, it has to go off at some point. If you're watching depressing indie films, if there's a dog, oh, you're on pins and needles the entire film. It's going to die. <laughs> Old Yeller style. Uh, yeah, I think this movie was beautiful. I think what I most enjoyed about this movie is kind of what you've already touched on, where there's a, a line kind of, where can you go where they need people? Uh, she refers to someone she meets as saying they need people up in Ketchikan. And I believe so many of the characters in this movie are listless or drifting or unvalued or ignored or unseen. I mean, one of the people that shows her the, the most kindness in whom she forms a relationship of sorts is an elderly security guard who, you know, how many times have you walked past security guards at like a Walgreens and you don't really think of them in those terms. And so I thought it was really beautiful how she draws that out. I think that's what you were touching on with like humanizing homelessness or poverty or, and she doesn't uh, do it to lecture us. She does it through beauty and beautiful stories and just having a real eye for small, intimate details and scenes. 
that uh, are just powerful. I think that was the first time. I don't know if I got a full tier. It certainly got a half tier. The security guard, you know, sees that Wendy is down on her luck. He gives her a wad of cash to help her out. It's seven dollars. I know, and then he even says, "Don't let whoever see this." Like whoever the driver is, you assume it's his wife or some family member. So I think that highlights, like even seven dollars uh, is, it, while it's small, in maybe general terms to him, it means a lot. Yeah, that's a sacrifice. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I thought the other thing I liked about the film was just how rarely, when a life unravels, I feel the film. I think the film shows without giving us a whole bunch of flashbacks or alternate scenes, how Wendy's life has been unraveling for some time. She calls her sister and, you know, her sister doesn't really want to talk to her and says they don't have money for her. And there seems to be some sort of past falling out. So, and her sister lives in Indiana. So for some reason she's leaving her family. And I think the lack of explanation really highlights the immediacy of the moment And I think that it just shows how alone she is. And I think it allows the audience to do some of its own work with the imagination of that or taking the cues that are immediately in front of it and kind of constructing a backstory, which does require a greater buy-in and I think could alienate some because I think maybe they could see that as just there's the story is confusing or, or not well explained. But I think, I think it's those kind of elements that she hints at that make her films uh, rich and it allows you to really engage with them. Yeah, everything's based on a short story and <laughs> this will sound so pretentious, but you must. Duncan, don't do it. That's the whole point of this podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, she's going to do it. Yeah, you must read her films. You must. Oh, I've betrayed myself so soon. Yeah, you you read Kelly's films. You got to fill in the blanks. You got to think along. You will not be spoon fed. What else you got, Duncan? Anything else strike you in this guy? I feel like I've hit my points. Ooh, I was getting worked up. Inciting incident of the film. Wendy is down on her luck. She has a, I think five hundred dollars total. She has a broken car. She just tries to steal a little bit to feed Lucy, and there is a teenage store clerk who is hell-bent on following the rules, making an example, making sure the rules apply to everyone. It's the policy. Just basically a little just following orders, Nazi excuse. The lack of sympathy there, that works me up. I also felt anger at him and at that character to see how, how easy it is to assume things and try to fill in the narrative rather than see someone's desperation. Yes, stealing is, is not right. But are, you, are, you, are we pro thievery now? What is this? Uh, 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 uh. We, we will certainly get into economics and capitalism and first cow. Oh, <laughs> first cow. It's unavoidable, but oh, that's true. Yeah. As they're saying, maybe life shouldn't be one strike and you're out and you're homeless. So yeah, please, please take care of each other. Have we made the world a better place yet? Did we do it? Do we need to shut down the podcast? Did we do it? No, we didn't. Duncan, let's move on to fans of, and I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say it, Duncan. Into the Wild. Fans of Into the Wild. That's what this movie's about. And you know it. I would say these are very different. Are they people making their way to Alaska with little means? Yes. Is one doing it out of desperation and one doing it out of a naive sense of, I can run away from the world because I'm the only independent thinker. This is a new age holding Caulfield. We will, we will review into the wild and you will be wrong. And I will get Sean Penn on here. That would be great. He will lecture you. 
I bet he would. <laughs> also, I feel like uh, if you're a fan of Jack Kerouac or the movie Leave No Trace with Ben Foster last year, uh, Deborah Granick, also a really talented filmmaker. She did Winter's Bone as well. Some of the same themes are hit on. Yes, I loved Leave No Trace, Living on the Edge of Society, Meal to Meal, also in the Northwest. Very different takes on it. Both both heart wrenchers. I think I can just cry from the Leave No Trace trailer. Let's talk about some lady frontiersmen in Meek's Cutoff. Sometimes I get the sense you don't care for me much, Miss Tetherow. Oh, I have no feelings one way or the other, Mr. Meek. Yeah, that, that, that's just a kind of way of saying you don't like me. I don't like where we are. So that's what you think, that we're lost? I'd say that seems about the right word for it. We're not lost. We're not lost, we're just finding our way. I certainly hope so. We're gonna make it all right. Oh, you don't need to patronize me, Mr. Meek. Well, that, now, well, now I think you're flirting with me, ma'am. You don't know much about women, do you, Stephen Meek? Well, I, I know something or other. <laughs> if you say so. Well, I know women are different from men, I know that much. But I'll tell you the difference if you care to hear it. I don't doubt you will. Women. Women are created on the principle of chaos. The chaos of creation, disorder, bringing new things into the world. Men are created on the principle of destruction. It's like cleansing, order, and destruction. You think I'm wrong? You can tell me. Chaos and destruction, the two genders always had it. Chaos and destruction. Well, I don't know. I have to think about it. Mm -hmm. Next, we have Meek's Cutoff. Kelly's Muse, Oregon, shows up again for the second time. This is during 1845 in the Oregon Trail. It is loosely based on an actual historical incident. And when you get a quote from Kelly regarding this movie... Here was the story of this braggart leading a bunch of people into the desert without a plan and becoming completely reliant on the locals who are socially different from him and who he is suspicious of, all of which seemed relevant to the moment. So this movie was made in 2010. I think uh, if you're talking about a cowboy with a little bit of bravado going into the desert, I think this is a not so loose inter her interpretation of George W. Bush. Really? I didn't know that. Interesting. Oh, absolutely, Ragai. I didn't even, I did not see this as like a giant allegory. Well, I mean, I'm not saying it's not the true case. I just totally went over my head. Interesting. Tell me more, Duncan. Tell me more. Yeah, I'll do my homework on these, but it's the Iraq war. We're not sure where we're going. We're dependent on the locals to help us. We're not sure which locals to trust. If they want us there, what are we doing there? Infighting begins and we're just lost in the desert. Interesting. Uh, I had not picked up on that allegory or metaphor uh, in the film, but that makes a lot of sense. That's that's really interesting. Uh, like I said, this movie, compared to her other uh, ventures, is a star-studded cast. Look at these names. Paul Dano, Indy Royalty, Michelle Williams, again, Bruce Greenwood playing Mr. Meek himself. So much and facial hair, you can't recognize him, even if you yeah. do know that name. <laughs> yeah, you might not recognize him. Uh, I liked this movie's title screen. I loved when it popped up. It was uh, stitched. 
it was sewn. And I thought that the rest of the movie had this wonderful handmade texture to it. It was intimate in detail. Uh, and I thought that against that backdrop, she then drew her humanity out patiently uh, through this mundane, uncertain journey uh, that seems on one hand boring and borderline pointless because it's like they're trying to get somewhere, but they don't even know if they're going in the right direction. But nevertheless, it's incredibly important because the very survival is at stake. Yeah, so Ryan, handcrafted title cards, a pink and yellow color palette throughout the entire film. This sounds a little Wes Anderson. Oh, don't get me started. I was, I'll stop you right there. I was waiting for Monster Gustav H to show up. Yeah, so once again, we are out there. Kelly's characters, are they running away from the past, running towards the future? We just know they're on the move with just a little bit of inspiration and desperation. We're stuck right in the middle. Hopefully this also might be where some people get stuck in terms of the audience scores, because I think that going back to her patient cinema, this is going to test you along those lines more so than anything she has made previously. And I would argue since. Yes. And if you're not sure what we're talking about when we say slow cinema, it's about six minutes before we hear the first words spoken, which are just a distant prayer in the background. As Ryan said, there is a star-studded cast, but we don't really see a close-up of a face until about 10 minutes in. And you don't get the first real description of the plot until about 15 minutes. But yeah, we are out there in the Oregon desert. If you like nature, there's plenty to look at. You can see the characters acting, even though it's not a close-up on their face. You're getting the spirit of the film. Come along you for the horrible ride. You you don't have to imagine what wagons going along the Oregon Trail looked like because she just films it for about 20 minutes and it lets you yes. experience it. Um, yeah, I think something else I loved about this movie are how much limits are at play here. Limits are noted throughout the film where characters are always arguing whether they've gone too far or have they gone far enough. Some push to go past those limits, whether it means uh, moving onward somewhere else, they're not sure where they're going, whether it means how they treat other people. And uh, on the other side of those limits is maybe safety or a virtue um, while they're being pushed by fear or uh, not being able to control the circumstances. So I think that's just a great ambitious take on how we make decisions, particularly under duress, particularly when we maybe have gone too far and what limits are we willing to break in order to survive or to get ourselves out of it. So Ryan, I feel like you're talking about, once again, we're back to Operation okay. Desert Freedom. Uh, when yeah, do we pull I mean, out? Have we gone too far? Can we turn back? Do we have to stay the course? Are we doomed no matter what happens? Yeah, I mean, the the parallels are are very, yeah, they're very much there. And I think that's an interesting, that makes me honestly want to rewatch it when the, with that lens. Duncan, did you, uh, did you feel maybe a little uh, indictment, a little uh, shame? Because maybe we have a confession, a little bravado, a little... Oh, yeah, you, you brought up being uh, on the road with, and comparing that to Wendy and Lucy, leading a trip, 
Yes, constant mutiny, everyone questioning you. I'd like to think we had a little greater idea of what we're doing. We had maps, we provided water. (laughs) So this movie is going to be for fans of the Oregon Trail computer game. Duh. Uh, Hostels, one of our recent Westerns. And then it also reminded me a bit of Slow West, Michael Fassbender. It's kind of a, Slow West, if you look at it that way, it's kind of a, in the same vein as True Grit. Fazbender playing Jeff Bridges. And then uh, I can't remember the boy actor's name now, but he plays kind of the uh, Haley Steinfeld character. So Michael Fazbender's leading the boy through a brutal environment. And I think that the story isn't obviously the same, but some similar elements. Slow, slow Westerns. Absolutely. Yeah. I saw Slow West for the first time a few weeks ago. Then we've got two movies that we will not cover here. Uh, One Night Moves which stars Jesse Eisenberg as basically their environmentalists who are willing to play that domestic terrorism card for the greater good. If you like Jesse Eisenberg, you should watch it. If you like something that's out of Kelly's wheelhouse, you should watch it. It's definitely accessible. It's entertaining. It's uh, pretty dark. Uh, and I enjoyed it. Not a must-see. Um Certainly in Kelly's wheelhouse, but I'd give a side recommendation if you're interested in Earth First Ecoterrorism, If a Tree Falls, a documentary that came out within the last 10 years. I thought we were going to say, if a tree falls, should we bomb a dam? (laughs) (laughs) Check out that documentary. 2016, we've got Certain Women. Uh, It's got Laura Dern, again, Michelle Williams, and Kristen Stewart as the three uh, title characters that you're going to recognize. And then Lily Gladstone playing the fourth. It takes the patience of Meek's cutoff and yet again pushes it to its extreme. So I don't dislike it, but you have to be in the mood for it. I would argue that it's beautiful and thoughtful, but it just kind of feels incomplete. There isn't really a, a lead character to kind of anchor everything. So you just kind of get these hints of emotions and themes in each everyone's life. And then the next thing you know, you're to the next character again. And it just kind of feels felt aimless to me, but maybe I'm a cold, cold hearted man. Free associating here, 20th century women, a film that came out around the same time. Oh, I, I absolutely love loved it. Oh yeah. I love that one. Katie loved that one. My wife, I showed her that and she loved it as well. So if you don't want to see certain women, when you can confuse your friends into thinking 20th century women's the same movie, go for it. Very good. We have to take what we can when the taking is good. That seems dangerous. So is anything worth doing? A royal cow. Until she barely produces a thing. Some people can't imagine being stolen from. Let's hope he's one of those. We got a window here, Cookie. History isn't here yet. It's coming, but maybe this time we can take it on our own terms. That takes us to the latest release, First Cow itself. We are following Cookie, a cook from the East Coast who is traveling with a group of fur trappers in Oregon. 
He then meets a Chinese immigrant called King Lu, who's seeking his fortune in that land. And the two soon become fast friends and collaborators on a successful business. This is the greatest bakery heist thriller I've ever seen. That's a controversial opinion. Because Number one out of one. I haven't seen any other bakery themed. <laughs> the crap audience reaction probably thought it was the worst bakery heist action scene they've ever seen. Because the- yet again, critical reception's great. Audience, no bueno. Who's seeing this film and then just hating it? Like, I feel like you know what you're buying into. Like, like don't you know what you're getting into? <laughs> you would think, you would think, but Duncan, I, w- I want to tell you something. First time this, when this movie opens, it opens on modern day Oregon. And let me just paint a picture here. It opens on a girl and her dog. Where have we seen this before? Wait, Wendy and Lucy, right? Wendy, Wendy and Lucy. Is Reichert going to, going to have her own extended cinematic universe where her stories are all connected through just the fact they're on the same planet. Are we, you know, is Thor going to show up? No, because there's no Michelle Williams cameo. And she, she casts maybe from Arrested Development, which no offense to her, she's great, but this is her shot and she whiffs it. Give the people what they want. Stop right there, Ryan. I'll give you an alternate interpretation. Maybe we go back to Wendy and Lucy. Is this Lee who stumbles upon her sleeping outside the train station? Is this oh, Lee see, 20 years later? This is becoming what I'm a saying. mad drifter? Right, right. Reichert had a web here and she just she whiffed. It was a it was a T-ball. Aaliyah Shawkat was in Night Moves. This could be her reprising that character. I mean, really, so basically we're just we're just doubling down. The possibilities were endless here. And I'm a little disappointed. It's 2020. Give me my extended cinematic universes. Art House fanboys, a leading contender for this podcast. <laughs> So, Duncan, uh, I think you brought this up when we kind of discussed this film before the podcast a little bit. This movie is all about what it means to be an American, the American dream, uh, opportunity, and how far should or can you go for it in order to seize that opportunity. Uh, And then for me, I think that what I honed in on with those themes was really the friendship between King Lou and Cookie. I love a good bromance. I feel like their friendship was touching as outcasts and kind of other from the social norms around them. And, uh, and yeah, and just how they, they kind of became a support to one another when neither of them had that. I thought that was really uh, beautiful. You ready for another hot take, Rye Guy? Let's have a hot take. Kelly Reichardt. Reminds me of Silent Bob. <laughs> Silent Bob? Kevin Smith's Silent Bob doesn't say a lot, but when the characters speak, they are just nuggets of pure wisdom. Mm. For me, the... See we were going there. Yeah. Yeah, for me, the thesis line of this film was to succeed in America, you either need to have capital, have a miracle, or commit a crime. So... Yes, America loves the pick yourself up by the bootstraps story. It is, it is possible, but I believe it's an exception to the norm. Sometimes the system is not balanced for everyone. And our characters in this film do not have that capital. They are poor men on the frontier. Does a miracle happen in the form of a cow? And therefore they're inspired to commit a crime? 
I mean, I feel like King Lou says, Hey, how does a poor man get a start or something like that? And then he goes into your line. I think that the cow, you know, is the first of its kind as it's floating on the river. And that one scene that I think is fairly iconic for the film, it does kind of feel almost ethereal. You know, the cow's just standing there, like chewing its cud, just floating across the river. It does feel like a miracle. I think my favorite uh, line is history isn't here yet. And then uh, King Lou continues to say, maybe this time we can be ready for it. And I think in the context of the moment, he's speaking maybe to the opportunity for them to take that uh, opportunity and make their fortune. But for me, I saw it more as history isn't here yet. Humanity has a chance to almost start over in these places. Um, But as you can see, again, there's a lot of white guys there to exploit the land. They're taking over the Native Americans, uh, you know, home. And you just see the worst sides of us tell pretty much the same stories that have been told throughout history. So I thought that line had a nice moment, uh, immediacy to it, and then also kind of a more meta element that the film drew out. Yeah, I interpreted history isn't here yet as in, this is the frontier. Everything is still wide open. I think there's, you know, there's certainly diversity out there. I mean, we have the English, the Scots, the East Coast Americans, Russians, Chinese, the natives, and now the cow. No country for first cows. It's rough out there. It is rough out there. Uh, I think, though, you and I both listened to the same interview where some the interviewer asked Kelly about whether this was a parable or if she was trying to teach us something. And she vehemently denied that and said, hopefully she wasn't trying to teach anybody anything. And it was the quote from Blake at the beginning. Uh, It's about friendship primarily. And I think that that's what I love about Kelly, similar to Wendy and Lucy. She's not uh, necessarily trying to teach us something. She's not trying to moralize to us. I think it's through the strength of her characters and the beautiful small details of their lives uh, that are often overlooked in our own lives and in other films that you, you learn to feel the things that then when they buck against or are uh, great against the system at large, it really makes you feel some of those things and deal with some of those things like capitalism where it's not necessarily about capitalism. And I think it's the tender touching story of friendship Uh, was just really powerful to me, especially when you're in this land where such comforts are in such short supply. I mean, all these men, they're living in the mud, they're living in huts, just barely put together with wood and they're working and they're hungry and they're dirty and they're lonely. And I think that that just showed uh, why the oily cakes are such a revelation. I think the simplest of pleasures like the oily cake, like the cow, like their friendship are just infused with this new worth when you're at a place where they are missing, you learn to appreciate those things more. I don't know if I said it before, but yeah, my favorite thing about uh, Reichardt's film is she can make a political issue human. She is not preaching here at all. Uh, Yeah, I wouldn't feel like this is a condemnation of capitalism. I think trade helps, you know, is what's bringing all these people together. But then once, uh, as King Lou does, starts getting a, a little greedy, that's when things start to get problematic. I think also it's just the level, even even just shows how even in a capitalist society where the deck is often stacked against many people based on uh, their background, their race, their sex, there is uh, still this element of risk. And I think that that's, you kind of know that 
what they're doing isn't going to last because they're stealing milk from the cow to make these oily cakes. So there's an expiration date. So it's them playing with the risk of capitalism to try and make their fortune so that Cookie can realize his dream and go to your, your, where you're at, Duncan, San Francisco, and make a hotel. <laughs> Duncan, let me st- ask you, which one of us is Cookie and which one of us is King Lou? Uh, these are both me. No, no, I get to be one of them. You got to be a friend to yourself. It sounds like... It that, sounds is the like most, that is the most King Lou thing you've ever said. I'm definitely Cookie. You have no heart. You're just a capitalist. Uh, I'm just, you know, man on the run, murdered a guy to defend my friends, naked in the woods. I was like, man on the run naked? <laughs> Ryan or, takes me into his tent. Once again, not Brokeback Mountain, but... What? You had to ask. Well, you had to ask. <laughs> I mean, I, I was just, you know, I was, when I was looking at King Lou chopping the wood and Cookie shaking out the, the pellet, I was like, which one of us is Dunk? Which one is Duncan? Which one is me? I don't know how to cook. I eat beans out of a can. <laughs> That's true. But you're also more maternal. You have often been talked about our riders mothering them and you're being a mother hen to our, to our riders, which it brings a little bit of Cookie because he watches that baby. That's what I, does he watch that baby though? <laughs> that was <laughs> totally dished. So you're right. Maybe it is just, maybe this is just you, Duncan. Maybe you, yeah. Maybe I'm just a figment of your imagination. King Lou says, abandon that baby. We've got work to do. Bastard in a basket. So speaking of that bar scene, one of the characters we have. I like your notes as top five naked Asian men you've met in the woods. <laughs> have you met more than five? That joke was not for public rag guy. <laughs> but back to the film. Speaking of great films, many people have been saying this is the best of the year. What do you feel, Ryan? Yeah, yeah, this is definitely my front runner. I think uh, Reichert has honed her strengths and her craft around a stronger story that is still as simple as her other stories. Uh, but I think the heart is what keeps you engaged. And I think, uh, yeah, this is in many ways a maturation of a lot of her strengths into something even stronger. And it makes me excited for what she does next. I mean, I think we could go on, but the performances here by Orion Lee and John McGarrow, uh, who play Cookie and uh, King Lou, they're really phenomenal. Rank rank the movies we just watched today. So you're going Wendy, Lucy, you're going First Cow, and then what? All right, so I'll do the top five Reichardt that I've seen. I'm going to go in order of positivity. Number one, Wendy and Lucy, 1.5 tears out of infinite sorrow. <laughs> Number two, I will go with uh, First Cow. Yeah, definitely a, s- a slow cinema, but I think beautiful, touching story, very interesting ideas, a lot of... Uh, thoughts to chew on the cut of like a cow. Number three, Meek's cutoff. Number four, working on some night moves. Number five, River of Grass. Um, Yeah, for me, I'm going to go first cow. Then I'm doing Meek's cutoff. Then I'm doing Wendy and Lucy. And then probably certain women in night moves are pretty interchangeable in my book. Kelly is an acquired taste. What do you think the easiest film for people to who are interested in jumping in that slow rolling river might be? I would definitely say First Cow or Night Moves. I think if you're looking for a little more of a thriller, if you enjoy thrillers more and you're willing to kind of see an off take on it, 
go night moves. And then if you can stomach that, then maybe just work your way on in. Wendy and Lucy are first cow next. I think if you are interested in more indie dramas uh, that are a little slower, focused on performances and on simpler stories, I think first cow, I think first cow is pretty accessible. I think it's pretty phenomenal too. I think there's a lot of people who could, who could get on board. You just have to know what you're getting into. For me, it's Wendy and Lucy. I think, I think this film, really? there, yeah, there's, there's she not started that first 30 minutes. She quit. She could not do it. And she'd never seen a Kelly film. How many animals has she abandoned? That heartless wife of yours. <laughs> you know, are her Lucy. Should, you are the should, stray dog. Should we get her in here and ask? <laughs> So then we go into a so quick top five, Michelle Williams. She's one of my favorite actresses. I really enjoy her. I think she's one of the best working. Her performances are varied and really soulful in a lot of ways. So number one for me is Blue Valentine. Hold on. Wow. I'm going to wind up. So I think what's interesting in here, we both picked our top five, Michelle Williams, and she has such a large body of work. There's only one film that overlaps between ours. I noticed that. Yeah, I actually noticed and that. And I know what you're going to say, Ryan. Yes, I did watch her scene on Home Improvement to help Brad put on his makeup. So I am familiar with a lot of her work. <laughs> well, clearly you've got Dawson's Creek at number five. So I guess we'll start right there. Dawson's Creek, number five. I, I grew up around a lot of women. This was essential viewing in our household. <laughs> Blame it on the women. Wow. I'm thanking the women for introducing me to this fine actress. <laughs> <laughs> okay go ahead continue at least once in a year someone in our household will say thank god she chose pacey that's a little inside baseball for all of you if you don't know what you were talking about but yeah so i don't dawson's I have creek. no idea what you're talking about exactly dawson's creek my number five so i'll keep rolling with this number four take this waltz uh this is her just like a simple sort of kitchen sink drama, similar to River of Grass, a woman living at home with her husband who just feels like she's missing out on something and is running away from an okay present worth the risk of an unknown future. Uh, Sarah Silverman is a co-star in there and she just has some great lines. I'd suggest checking out Take This Waltz, dramatic comedy. Number three, we've been talking about it nonstop, Wendy and Lucy. Number two... Michael Showalter's directorial debut, The Baxter. The Baxter. I think, as I said in our opening episode, this is the only, I think the only romantic comedy that I like that has a happy ending. Uh, certainly a unique take on the tropes of rom-coms, but certainly that Showalter, David Wayne, absurdist humor sprinkled throughout. Before you say anything else, I need you to know that I am also reading the dictionary. Really? Yes. What letter are you up to? Right now, I'm working my way through G. Oh, G. G is a classic. You know, I particularly liked the word Gromwell, a type of plant bearing yellowish flowers and white, white stony, stony nutlets. nutlets. <laughs> I love that word. So we both read the dictionary. It's a truly bizarre coincidence. Providential. Fortuitous. Happenstantial. Felicitous. Another big word. And I'll give all the credit to Michael Showalter for turning Michelle Williams into a fine actress because her next film, my number one, the Oscar nomination, Brokeback Mountain. This is, I think this is one of the finest acting performances I've 
ever seen. Her ability to express her love and hatred for the same man in one moment is just is just beautiful. Uh, my number one for Michelle Williams is Blue Valentine. I think that what has since become a bit of a trope in terms of dysfunctional relationships, this movie did a really refreshing look at love gone wrong and love that kind of is poisoned against itself. And she plays opposite Ryan Gosling and just does a really beautiful job in that. Number two, my week with Marilyn. I think that is one that's not as popular with a lot of people, but I thought the way she portrayed Marilyn Monroe, she really inhabited her with both her public persona and then also with heart and humanity that, you know, she had, but she didn't share with many people. Uh, and then you got a couple of Kelly's on here, Meek's Cutoff and Wendy and Lucy. I think her character in Meek's Cutoff is great. I think that she's strong. I love her relationship with Will Patton, how they like discuss things. Uh, she's not just a doormat or she's not just a wife who takes care of the domestic things and is left kept out of decisions. I think that her character is refreshing and uh, really a big motivating force in that film. Wendy and Lucy, we've covered it. And then finally, Manchester by the Sea uh, by Kenneth Lonergan. She plays uh, Casey Affleck's wife, who's estranged from him. And she basically has one knock them out, drag them out scene that I just think she really inhabits really well. It's a powerhouse. It's a lot of emotion. It is what you think it is, but it's Michelle Williams, so it's good. All right, Duncan, I think, uh, I think that's, that's it. I think that's it on Kelly. I think we've talked about Wendy and Lucy enough. <laughs> <laughs> we've done it. We did it. Hopefully, let's talk about First Cow and it just ended up being about Wendy and Lucy. How much you cried over it? Should I be embarrassed about that? No, no. Um, yeah, so Ryan, anything else you've been seeing you want to give a shout out to? I mean, I gave my big tease at the beginning of this episode. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead and take us home on that real quick. So do you want the good news or the bad bad news first? There's never much good news. <laughs> There's no good news in my life? <laughs> not currently. You used that at the beginning. Or do we are we cutting that intro? <laughs> oh, no, we're not. So, yeah, my cries for help. I was catching up on some uh, Matthew McConaughey films the past few weeks and not the good ones. <laughs> I have watched Failure to Launch and Ooh. How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. You are a masochist. Uh, as we say, I don't drink. So sometimes you just need to turn that brain right off. And with a lack of sports on right now. These rom-coms were some easy listens. <laughs> Seriously, and one man shot a whiskey and drunkenness is another man's Matthew McConaughey rom-com from the 90s. Or it early just 2000s. takes the nerves right off. Drink it and it always goes down smooth. Whew. Especially so, when yeah, Matthew but, takes his shirt off. Those were my cries for help. My tears for joy. We're going to have to watch it soon. I don't want to spoil it, but I believe it was the 2012 Oscar winner, Searching for Sugar Man, a beautiful documentary. You don't know where it's going, uh, but it is gorgeous. Ryan, you've got some, you've seen some documentaries recently that you think are top notch. Yeah, I also think it's funny. You didn't know what you were getting into, but sobbing by the end, that's that's our bike tours, Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I, I recently saw The Painter and the Thief came out this year. Really phenomenal. Uh, it was about a painter in Norway who's painting gets stolen by a thief she then 
reaches out to that thief after he is caught and asked to paint him. And it's about the subsequent relationship that they form. Really well done. I think that the humanity and the subversion of expectation and how we perceive one another is just really well done there and very thought provoking and moving. And then one of my favorites from a few years back, Minding the Gap, it's about a group of boys, they're skateboarding friends, they've known each other, grown up together, uh, multiple backgrounds, and what starts as one of them wanting to be a filmmaker and just filming everything they do turns into this really poignant, beautiful look at how time changes us, changes our relationships, changes our friendships, and then changes our perception of what we were experiencing in the past. And I think it it starts off kind of light and funny and you get to know the boys and enjoy their friendship and then it just gut punches you. Gekka! So two more of my favorite documentaries from the last recent years were Leaning Into the Wind about the artist Andy Goldsworthy. This is, if you are a disciple of Tree of Life, this is just nature porn, beautiful, love it, love it, love it. And this one, I don't know how to describe it. John McEnroe in the realm of perfection. So you think about this tennis player, do you think a good way to create a documentary about him would be uh, through French New Wave with a punk rock soundtrack? You don't, but that's what we got. And I loved it. Uh, I demand that I see this with Ryan because I just want to see his neck break as he looks at me going like, what journey are we going on right now? Because even if I tell you every beat, it's still not going to make sense, but it's going to entertain. Nice. I look forward to that. Uh, maybe one day we'll actually see each other again, but I doubt Don't it. get your hopes up, kid. <laughs> it's over. Society's crumbling slowly from here. Any other films you're watching to escape from reality? I've been catching up on some Lonergan, watched Margaret recently, doing a bit of blind spotting there. Um, It was ambitious. It was big. Uh, He swung for the fences and he hits a few and misses on a few others. Uh, It's kind of about the the moral awakening of a teenager and kind of dealing in the moral universe that is life and how there is a lack of reconciliation and nuance and people get hurt even when you try to fix things. And uh, besides that, no, I'm just delving into a little 90s Italian cinema with Stanley Tucci's Big Night. He plays a, he plays a brother who owns a restaurant and uh, Ian Holmes plays an Italian, believe it or not. And teaser, Ian Holmes bites Stanley Tucci in the ass. So I'm not sure if you wanted to see that, but if you did, that's your shot. <laughs> Going into our fetishes next week on Fetishes in Cinema. So next week, Duncan, we're going to head into another emerging filmmaker, Trey Edward Schultz. Uh, Cresha is the freshman effort, followed up by It Comes at Night. And then after that, we're going to round it off with Waves, also based in Florida. Cresha, I think this is the best micro-budget film I've ever seen. What this? Oh, save it for the pod. <laughs> we got to make sure they come back. We'll go oh, into the okay. details. Okay, all right. But yeah. All right. All right. Sorry. What this man can do with $30,000 puts film school to shame. All that and more on the next episode of One Day We'll Name This Podcast. It's hardly the hottest ticket in town, darling. What? Where's the next one?